Welcome to Control the Controllables. I'm Dan Kiernan from Soto Tennis Academy in Spain, and we've teamed up with Max Tennis Academy in Ireland. We've brought this podcast together to entertain, educate, and energize the tennis community through the different lenses of the sport that we love. From Grand Slam champions to those at grassroots level, from sports journalists to backroom staff, Our aim is truly to get under the bonnet of the tennis world at all levels. So sit back and enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 99 of Control the Controllables. As we often hear from parents, players, coaches, that there needs to be more money in the sport. The money needs to be spread out to the lower levels. Well, today we're bringing a bit of a different take on that. I think we could do a better job of helping players understand where media fits into tennis as an industry, particularly understand that it's a it's a big financial driver for the sport, that the rights-holding broadcasters who request an interview are customers of the tournament. And I think we, we kind of tend to pussyfoot about, around that a little bit. And, you know, sometimes it's pitched to players as, oh, could you do it? Would you mind yeah. doing it? Actually... They've got a huge financial stake in in our tournaments and in the financial health and sustainability of our sport. And that was Eleanor Preston, a broadcaster, a journalist, a former agent to Elena Baltasha. She's moderated Andy Murray press conferences. She's written a book about Andy Murray. She's now the owner of the Amelia Group, which is a PR and media company that looks after PR media at the Olympics and also all of the Grand Slams of tennis. I think it's fair to say she's got some serious experience. She's got some serious insight and some great storytelling. And I know you're going to love this one as well. So sit back and enjoy listening to Eleanor Preston. So Eleanor Preston, a big welcome to Control the Controllables. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. I've heard such good things about this pod. I've heard I've heard the pod for myself, and and uh, you've had some wonderful guests. So I'm I'm really pleased to be part of it. Well, we're very excited to have you, and and also a bit nervous, you know, bringing someone in in the world of media with the experience that you've got. You know, maybe you can give us some tips at the end on on how we can improve it as well. Absolutely, but I mean, I've spent the last sort of 10, 12 years on the side of of players and coaches, so. So I'm definitely, I've seen, I've seen it media from both sides, but yes, I'm, I'm always happy to give people tips. And there's, there's lots that we can get into, but traditionally on the podcast, we like to start with, I guess, how, how you get into doing what you do. And obviously a, a tennis journalist, a tennis broadcaster, someone who now has their own media company in the world of tennis. So start by telling us, you know, how, how you got into the world of media back in the day. Well, the world of the media, I, I trained as a journalist. So I, um, yeah, I did a, I didn't go to university, which was, a, you know, somewhat unconventional choice. Um, so I kind of was a bit of a late bloomer academically, which is a very polite way of putting it. Um, and I ended up going and, and training as a journalist. So, um, you know, it's very practical skills. And then I went, uh, I spent a couple of years working, writing features and, and longer pieces, worked in magazines ostensibly for a for the first few years of my journalist career. Um, but I was obsessed with sport and obsessed with tennis and I just wanted to, to become a sports writer. And, and so I just worked on 
making that happen really. Um, and I was, um, my first proper job as a journalist was a, as deputy editor of Majesty magazine, writing about the royal family. Very so if you've nice. got any royal questions, I'm all over it. <laughs> I can fact check the crown like you wouldn't believe. Um, but I, that was my way in because what I did is I then talked the editor into letting me write features about with any kind of sports angle. So the Queen's racehorses, members of the royal family playing golf, show jumping. You know, fortunately they're quite a sporty family. So that helped me build up my portfolio. And from that, I then kind of talked myself into other jobs and other freelance work and eventually got a job uh, working on the, what was then fairly new ACP tour website. Um, and that was my springboard. But the big question I have to ask, are they any good at tennis? This Royal family lot? Well, <laughs> Prince Edward's very good at real tennis and, okay. and is by all accounts quite accomplished. But I don't, I mean, they've, probably, they've got tennis courts at their properties, but I'm not sure how good they are. I couldn't give you a, a clear assessment. And, and as we discussed before we, before we started recording, I'm not sure with my tennis game, I'm in a position to judge others. <laughs> because, but, and you say that because, it, again, it is very much a, a tennis podcast. And I guess my first question often is where where have our guests got their passion for the sport of tennis? Mm -hmm. So, and, and off air, you talked about not playing tennis to the, to the highest of levels, but you have already mentioned that you did have a real strong vision and passion to get involved in tennis. So where, where's that come from? I, I think my mum primarily, um, my dad had no interest in sport at all. So I kind of had a great female role model in my mum who loved sport. Uh, she took us to watch Fulham. Uh, which I, you know, who I still support for my sins. Um, and she took us out playing tennis all the time and was like everybody watched Wimbledon. So my first sort of sporting memory actually is Virginia Wade winning Wimbledon, yep. which um, please don't do any maths associated with that. But that's <laughs> probably my first, you know, image was Virginia in her cardigan um, in that final. So I think it was sort of, there was just something about tennis that really I connected with and, and continue to connect with now. And it was, um, you know, I spent years watching it and obsessing about it. And, and I never, I don't think I ever quite believed that it was, I kind of could get a job doing it um, or, or working in, in tennis in some form. So when I did, it was it was brilliant. And, you know, even now I sort of think, you know, it's amazing to me that it happened, you know. So so I think I think you talk about passion. I think everyone that works in tennis, whatever they do, has to have a passion because it's not easy. It's not easy to get into, no. um, you know, on the media side. It's com it's very competitive, you know, to being a, a female sports journalist in the era that I came through. Well, you know, there weren't many opportunities. You, you did have to push that bit harder and, and I definitely think the passion is what drives all of us in the sport in different ways yeah no without question and I think I think one thing that really really hit me there as well was there's so many educational messages in these podcasts and already you've given us a gem and and that is you had absolute clarity of vision of what you wanted to do you know and, and so you knew where you were heading and I think you used the terminology you created that and you created that within the royal family as well. <laughs> Quite <laughs> you know? a jump, isn't it? It's not a conventional route. No. <laughs> so why would you go from working around the royal family to all of a sudden being involved with the ATP? Well, because I think as a journalist, it, it, it's 
journalism in itself is a, is a skill. It's a trans, it's a movable skill, and it's a um, and it's a saleable skill. And you could write about lots of things as a job in journalists. Uh, you know, I've written about everything from tiaras, obviously, to um, you know, I was I had a brief stint as editor of Australian News Agent and Stationer magazine writing about the Australian news agency business so you know you it's a skill you move to different parts of it so your, your job as a journalist is to is to take a topic and interpret it understand it and then present it in a really accessible way and and that's the same whether it's tiaras or tennis yeah and and, and you've again you mentioned about the difficulty of being a female in that very male dominant business and if we if we look back at that time I guess almost like the vision and we've had Mike Dixon we've had Neil Harmon we've had different people on the on the podcast and they give me a very clear visual of a bunch of men sitting around drinking beer smoking at the end of the day you know talking about stories sharing stories trying to get the prints out at the last minute you know before before the deadlines how how was that as a female breaking into that world well, that all sounds very familiar, actually. I seem to remember a lot of red wine. I think that was probably maybe more than beer. But um, yeah, I, th- I think it's more when I look back on it. At the time, you're just getting on with it. And I think, you know, you, when you're in the minority, there's a part of you that doesn't want to stick out and doesn't want to make a big fuss about your minority status. You really just want to fit in and get on with it. So. Yeah. At the time, I think I was very reluctant to be too vocal about um, anything other than the most extreme discrimination. And, and, and most of the discrimination, looking back, that I experienced, and probably most female sports journalists would, would experience, is, is, is kind of low level. It was never explicit. And, um, you yeah. know, it's, it's, it's through um, unconscious bias. It's through things like not being heard you know, being overlooked for things. It's not necessarily, it's sins of omission, not right. necessarily, you know, I was never abused or shouted at or, or it's a much more subtle than that. And therefore over time you can kind of live with it. And it's now when I look back and I think, well, actually I'm thankful that the British tennis writers particularly are now a much more diverse group um, and generally internationally are much more women, uh, people of color, um, and, and I'm, I'm really pleased because that had to happen, it had to change. And the more diverse we make it, the more people watching from the sidelines, as we all were at one stage, feel like they're in, they could be part of that too. So I, I do think that's really important. And now I'm much more, I'm actually much more vocal about the importance of supporting women in tennis and promoting women of all, all parts of the industry and women in media as well. And I kind of wherever I can, try and and help that effort um because i think it's important and you and you answered the the question i was going to ask has that changed now but i i guess the the next bit for me is i always think that tennis seems to do a better job of that than other sports Uh, certainly from from my lens which i know as a as a white male (laughs) former tennis player that's an easy lens to have so from your inside is that is that something that you see compared to other sports um it's very hard to say without working i mean i've worked in lots of other sports but but kind of on the periphery um i definitely think a lot of sports have uh some of the same issues that tennis have which is 
the female workforce is not big enough. There aren't enough opportunities for for women in areas like coaching. And and it's not, you know, sometimes it's like I said, it's a kind of unconscious bias that and and it works two ways. So okay, you've got if you're an employer, you would your kind of natural inclination is to have more of the same type so more people like you because that feels natural and normal and that feels like the right fit because that's what's always happened and as a woman you look at that and go well I probably won't bother applying for that because that doesn't look like I'm I belong in that area so you've got that kind of constant discrimination and 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 kind of elite uh yeah. elite if you like working in parallel um and so I think that that is true of other sports as well. I think tennis shouldn't be complacent. I definitely think we we need to do an awful lot more in, in lots of different areas. Um, perhaps in in kind of media and on the communication side, uh, and and to some degree the administration, we're getting much better, and, and there are more women. Um, you know, we're getting more female tournament directors, for example. You know, yeah. uh, we work with. You've got Rebecca James, who's, who's tournament director of. Nottingham Grass Court event. You've got people like Brenda Perry, who we work with, who's tournament director of Wuhan Open. You know, you've got a lot of of good yeah. female tournament directors, and 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 that empowers other women below them. So I think it's about in all areas of the industry, um, building on what we have and and trying to make pathways for women to go further and higher up. Um, and and I think it's just good for the health of the sport. More diversity of all kinds is really just a sign of a very healthy sport in all sorts of ways. And it's not just about women. It's also, of course, about um, people of colour, people with disabilities, LGBTQ. You know, it's 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 about diversity in general. Absolutely. And, and, and going back to your time when you were writing for numerous newspapers, it was the come on Tim era, you know, the Henman Hill era. And then Greg came along. I would imagine that was a bit of a challenge as well to kind of push the British girls onto the scene when we, I guess we had two guys who were making semifinals and finalists of grand slams. And maybe the girls at that time weren't quite getting past second, third rounds of grand slams. Well, you had, yeah, it was definitely, you had the two issues and you had just the general issue that, women's sport was seen as far less important and you might when you got to the stage of women's semi-finals um you might get we better we probably better do a piece about the women as well and and that was how it was framed um slightly different at Wimbledon but but still very much men 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 oh we better do the women and and you 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 know as a journalist you you can find yourself even buying into that but I did you know because it was partly just for selfish reasons that it was more interesting to write about different stories. And, and, yeah. and that was really, um, you know, writing about Anki Othavong, who I'm sure we both know, who's, who's MBE, as we should call her now. Yeah. MBE. She was on the podcast. Um, she was fantastic. Oh, she's a legend. She's brilliant. Yeah. And what a brilliant role model for, for any young girl going into playing or, or, any any part of our industry anyway so that was you had Annie Kay um you know breaking into top 50 and doing really well and then that was where I first got to know Bally because I wrote for a lot of the Scottish newspapers um and so they were always really interested in what she was doing and she was always a brilliant story because she was always you know we knew that she had these uh, underlying health issues we didn't know how serious we they were but 
you know, she she was a very good talker and, and, and always had a compelling story and always had such passion. So anyone that ever saw her play was interested in yep. how she was doing. So, like I said, it was almost a selfish journalistic reason. Actually, these are good stories. You know, yep. here you've got Annie Kay is from Hackney and, you know, is not white Surrey straight from the cookie cutter British yep. tennis player mould. And then you've got Bally, who's, you know, born in the Ukraine, uh, lived all over the place, half Scottish, half Ukrainian, uh, you know, just full of passion, you know, battling adversity. So these were fantastic stories, really. Yeah. And then you had, the, you know, Georgie Stoop and you had lots of other players in the mix as well. So, um, and that's certainly when I switched and, and began uh, working as player media advisor. Uh, so I stopped my journalistic career in 2009 and, and I moved... I did what the other what, what journalists call move to the dark side, which is to move <laughs> to the PR and, and media relations side. As I always say, that there's no there's no light side. Yeah. <laughs> it's just shades of dark, really. Um, yeah. But that was really where I was able to kind of proactively try and tell those stories because I thought they just weren't getting out there. And they were great, you know, there was great stuff to be talked about. There was that was, yes, Andy's amazing and and an icon and extraordinary in every possible sense, but there's only so much you can write about him and what you need actually also to, to show people how good he is, is to write about all the other levels of tennis. Yeah. Um, so that was, that was sort of actually drove the passion to change my own career in a way, the yeah. desire to tell those stories more, more and in different ways. Yeah, and it's that, it's that relatedness. I, I always thought it was a shame I wasn't better <laughs> because I'm from, because I'm from Newcastle and nobody played tennis from Newcastle. You know, if it, yeah. I, I always felt like if I'd been a bit better and the same Sarah Borwell, who we know very well, Jimmy Nelson, mm. none of us quite pushed to a level where we were able to get enough media exposure that, that would have resulted in maybe tennis being cool rather than tennis being a sissy sport which is which is very much how it was viewed in the northeast you know if i if i missed a football game to play tennis i'd, I'd almost have three or four different people try and beat me up at school you know in, in the playground and this was nobody could really relate to tim henman you know it's mm. amazing there's nothing against tim but whiter than white grandfather served the first ever overarm serve or grandmother served the first ever overarm serve at Wimbledon, you know, the English accent, you know, and these sort of things. So massive credit to you that you tried to bring those related stories through. And I know that led to you having a little bit of a stronger relationship with Bally because you actually became her agent after that as well. Is that right? That's right. So I was with the LTA for about 18 months. And that, when that came to an end, Bally decided to sort of come with me, which was a great um, leap of faith and a great support from her because, you know, I was essentially, we started a sort of fledgling business at that stage, which has now been going for more than 10 years. Um, we were starting our company, the Amelia Group, and, and she, she kind of backed me and went with me. And and so that meant that meant a lot. And, and yeah, we became really close and, and um, became her manager. And, and uh, so looking after her, some of her commercial stuff, but but also obviously helping her get her story out there. Uh, and, and we became very good friends. And, and this for people listening 
because this is something I've been guilty of on the on the podcast is talking with familiarity about a player using nicknames. So uh, Elena Baltasha, who you know many people in the tennis world will absolutely know, she was British number one for many years. You know, played a great role in British tennis, and unfortunately left us way too soon. I think back in two thousand and fourteen with liver cancer, and. When I was looking it up, Eleanor, there was some nice words that you you used, which she never once asked why me or why is this happening? She was incredibly strong and determined, and that's who she was. She went through it all without the slightest bit of self-pity or ego. And it was, there's such lovely words about, about Bali. Could you, could you kind of tell us a little bit more about your time with her and what she meant to British tennis? Yeah, I mean, she, I always called her the anti-diva because she was, you know, she'd be going out to play a match and she'd be, you know, re-gripping her rackets and planning when she was doing her warm-up. And the last thing she'd say to you is, have you got enough? Do you want a cup of tea? Have you got everything? Yeah, Are yeah. you all right? Her, her focus was always on other people and how they were and if they're okay and if they needed anything. And she cared passionately about others and, and and we always talk about tennis being a selfish sport and it, and it is and absolutely when she crossed the white line she was a warrior and yeah. that was a great thing about Bally is she was she had this amazing split personality on the one hand she was this very kind um you know incredibly considerate person and on the other hand as soon as she stepped on the line she was an absolute badass and she yeah. you know I remember her playing Maria Sharapova and and Sharapova talking Russian at the other end of the court. You know, at that time, Sharapova's, you know, a very highly ranked, and let's face it, Maria Sharapova. Yeah. And and Bali said to her in Russian at Chains of Ends, you know, I can hear everything you're saying and I understand it all, don't you? <laughs> Brilliant. And that was Bali, you know, no fear, yeah. no quarter yeah. asked, no quarter given. But she, yeah, I mean, it's easy when somebody dies very young. She was only 30 when she died in, in May 2014. It's easy to kind of deify them. Um, yeah. and, and talk about them almost as a saint. She definitely wasn't that. She was funny and irreverent and swore a lot and had no time for people she called jokers. She was a very rich, sort of fully rounded personality. Um, and her impact on British tennis is huge. And I think it's still going. And I really, I think one of the things that makes me really proud is the way um, Anki Ottavong has, has continued to keep Bally's memory alive in the Fed Cup team. Yeah. And I know that, I know that Johanna Conta really respected Bally and really looked up to her and I think has a lot of affection for her and keeping her memory alive as well. But I think Anne and Bally had this great bond from having, you know, their careers had run in parallel. They'd had this great rivalry. They'd had years where really they didn't get on at all. And then towards the end of Bally's life, they'd come together and, and had this amazing closeness. And I think all of the passion that Bally brought in playing seven years of Fed Cup and tries to bring into the team when new players come in, they talk about Bally and, and they keep her memory alive. And I think, you know, that's one way in which she's had a tangible impact. Obviously, you know, her academy that she started with her husband, Nino, um, is still going and, and that's fantastic. But I, I almost think it's more the kind of spirit of Bally is, is, yep. is the, her legacy. And I think that's definitely there. And I think, you know, lots of young players would do a lot worse than to, read about her and, and watch Absolutely. some of watch some of her moments and you know she went all out for everything and she yeah. gave of herself in everything she did whether it was you know coming back from a tournament on a Friday night at midnight and 
being on the courts at 7am in Ipswich in, you know, freezing cold indoor courts with seven-year-olds the next morning, that was ballet. Everything yeah. was 100% um, in every aspect of her life. And, and you know, she'd, she'd hit her biggest forehand on match point down. That was yeah. how she lived her yeah. life. So, you know, I continue to be inspired by her, really. You know, she's, she's obviously in my thoughts all the time. But also, you know, you just try and take a bit of that spirit with you because, yeah. um, you know, all of that was done by, at the time where she was almost certainly feeling really crap a lot of the time because of this, um, you know, she had this underlying liver condition, which in the end turned into liver cancer. And she may well have played for the last couple of years of her career with the cancer starting. We don't know. Yeah. Um, but even before that, she was dealing with long term health problems, taking a lot of pills it was kind of miraculous that she managed to forge a tennis career mm. at all with her health problems. So, you know, in, in all sorts of ways, a really inspiring figure for British tennis, really. Well, lo lovely words, Eleanor. And, and I think whenever you can almost identify with a tennis player for what they stand for, I always think that they're, they're successful. So if I take myself... I didn't really know Bally. I'd said hello to her the odd time. Maybe a couple of my players had practiced with her, you know, being on the same court as her. Yet I absolutely knew what she stood for. Mm. I knew she was a fighter. I knew she was brave. You know, those, those things came through so loudly and clearly. And I think that's another one for juniors or, or for, for players listening, you know, know what you stand for, you know, what's important to you and bring that through every single day. And again, I mean, probably probably one of the most emotional, we've had quite a lot of emotion on the podcast was when Annie Kay was talking about Bally, you know, and she spoke, real, really spoke from her heart about how she was speaking to the girls before every Fed Cup match, what they went through. And it was, it was a real kind of hairs on the back of your neck stand up, more, stand out moment. And the fact that, you know, you guys are, are letting that spirit, which will continue to live, live long. I think it's, it's, it's lovely to hear and lovely to hear your words on it, Elna. And moving on from there, did you then become an agent for any other players or, or was or was that it or was that when you moved into Amelia group and that was kind of gone full throttle well when we started the company we didn't really have much of a plan you know you sort yeah. of think when you start a company sit with a five-year plan and you work out and Faye Andrews my business partner and I didn't really we sort of were kind of like well let's start with this and see where we're going and one of our other clients was Will to Win Tennis a company I'm sure you're you, you're familiar with or some of your listeners will be familiar with so they run a lot of uh, tennis around public parks in London around the Royal Parks particularly so then we kind of got into a bit of community sport as well so it wasn't that we necessarily ever set out particularly to be commercial agents because I think uh, you know our background and, and Faye worked for the ITF for seven years so she worked in administration and also uh, communications and on the juniors and seniors particularly so our backgrounds, and my background is very strongly media, so our backgrounds were kind of not necessarily on the kind of selling sponsorship or commercial side. We sort of fell into that. And our core has always been much more kind of media. And, and, and then we moved a lot into media operations, which is basically um, creating the environment for media to work in at tennis tournaments, whether right, that's okay. running the interview system for, for player press conferences and interviews or, or running a press office at say the Nature Valley Classic at Birmingham or, or those kind of roles. So 
So, so we've kind of, our portfolio is reasonably broad. Um, the kind of commercial agent stuff we've done some of, but it's never necessarily been, you know, the, the, the out and out driver. I have to ask you a question. I don't know if you've ever read a book called Lean Startup, which, by the way, I would fully recommend to, to listeners who are looking to set up a business. It's only about 120 pages. It's, a, it's an easy read, which is good, because if it wasn't, it would kind of be ironic because of the message it tries to tell you. And, and what the whole book is about is when people set up businesses, they often spend years bringing together crazy business plans and trying to plan every single detail and in reality once you start things start to change anyway so so kind of going with a pretty loose plan have a, have a, have a, obviously a strong passion and will to do it and then kind of find your way and learn as you go which is which is what seems to have have, have happened for you guys uh, 100% and, and Faye and I are both doers you know we kind of get on with stuff we, yeah. we get stuff done and so I think that was just how our personalities worked. And, and so our instinct was to get clients, get some income, get working, you know, do good work. Yeah. And from that, other things come. And, and that's pretty much how it's been for the last 10 years, really. You do good work, you build a reputation, hopefully, um, and, and you kind of keep trying to get better and keep trying to do things better. And you evolve as it goes. And of course, you know, the last... 12 months or so we've had to do quite a lot of evolving in ways that we didn't necessarily foresee and and adapting and although that's been very difficult and you know great for the work-life balance not great for the bank balance as we keep saying it's also been interesting for the business because it's kind of forced us to try new things and adapt and think about different uh, ways of doing what we do so you know the adapting is actually kind of what keeps it interesting and and keeps your brain ticking over in lots of ways as well so what is the reality to the to the industry of of COVID-19 in the last nine 12 months well I'm sure you know you can probably speak about the impacts on people like coaches who are all self-employed obviously um people like physios fitness trainers um you look at every area of our industry and it will have been affected and, and people's livelihoods will have been affected. And, and there's always a lot of focus, understandably, on players and, and, and rightly on lower ranked players in particular and how uh, it's impacted on them. But the ripple effect on all the other areas of the industry, you know, we had 11 events cancelled, probably most of them in a space about two weeks, including an Olympic Games in Wimbledon. Um, you know, these are big contracts for us. We're a small, small company. And so, you know, the financial impact was us. For, for us as a company, we've lost, we, we reckon we lost about £110,000 worth of either secured or projected income in 2020, which made us wish we hadn't stopped to work it out. Um, but, <laughs> yeah. and, and I'm absolutely, I have no violins out whatsoever because, yeah. you know, we're very fortunate, Faye and I, you know, we've not lost anyone close to us with COVID. We're very, um, you know, and we've able, been able to manage financially because we've been able to kind of get by. So yeah. um, I'm well aware that there are many, many people in hospitality and all sorts of industries who've had their income completely wiped out. So uh, I'm definitely not, you know, saying boohoo us, but I think it is, I think it's worth thinking as an industry that we are quite scarred as an industry in terms Absolutely. of the impact of COVID in, in every possible way. Yeah. You know, how people are managing running clubs or tennis centres right now or public tennis centres or all the different people 
who who have a stake in in a successful and healthy yeah. tennis industry are all being affected. Yeah, and actually, I, it's got me thinking there, and I have had this thought when you talk about lower-ranked tennis players. I actually think they're the ones that have done okay out of this. And 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 if you hear me out, then you can. I'd love to get your opinion on this. Lower-ranked tennis players tend to not really have any income already, <laughs> and if anything, actually, they're they it's costing them more money every time they travel. You know, a lot of them won't have responsibility in terms of rentals cars families you know all of these type of things that that actually probably some of them have and i know there's been some payouts with the atp itf wta and probably some of them have done the odd bits of coaching hours and are doing okay but i don't expect you to get your violin out and the same with myself because it's massively affected my tennis academy as well however it is people that have more responsibility that have been hit hard because mm. you know, in this in this in this moment, we still have people that we employ. We still have rentals. We still have families to to pay for, and 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 that's just in our industry as well, you know. But it's it it's it's certainly. I'm a one to try and put positive spins on things, but I also think it's okay for us sometimes to say, Do you know what, this has been crap. Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. You know, yeah. and it sucks. It sucks. And, and, and we just, we, we do have to accept that. And, and, and I think we have to help each other and, and work together. And, and that's where, you know, your relationships within the sport become important. Um, your networking and you look at how you can help people who are struggling and what can we do and, and how can we kind of pull together. Um, and one of the things, even if it's just kind of providing emotional support to colleagues, you know, especially in small companies or small organizations or self-employed people, you don't necessarily have a company infrastructure. So I think even just like regular Zoom calls and checking in with each other. Yeah. One thing we started, which was Faye's really good idea actually, um, during lockdown was, uh, we started something called the Media Lounge, the Amelia Group yeah. Media Lounge. And what it was is, and, and we'll continue to do them, is just a Zoom call during tournaments to bring journalists together. And sometimes we'd bring a guest on or an expert, maybe yeah. someone who was actually on site at the tournament to give them a bit of insight because, you know, they're doing everything in the way we're having this conversation now via Zoom, looking at a screen, they're having yeah. to cover the tournament remotely and it, 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 they're missing each other apart from yeah. anything else. They're missing their chats over coffee in the morning. So we wanted to try and recreate that. And I think that's that's been really good and really successful. But I, I think that's a lesson really is that, Normally, we're at tournaments, we're together. It's a very people-centered yeah. sport. There's a lot of chatting and a lot of meeting up with people, and you're, you know, you're watching matches with people, I guess, or you're on court with people, or you're, you know, in a press room with people. And and to suddenly have that taken away it, and becomes very, very solitary your working life. I think it's really important just to to kind of acknowledge that and look at right, okay, what can I do? Whether it's a weekly call or or whatever. Absolutely. And you mentioned. Wimbledon but you also mentioned the Olympics and I'm sat here and I'm thinking there's only two of you so 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 those are <laughs> those are pretty big events so come on give us give us a little bit of the down low on on how that works with you guys uh, let's start with the Olympics which is such a an incredible event which hopefully will go ahead this year Yes, hopefully. I mean, I think it'll go ahead in some form. I think it's it's a question of what form it takes. But um, yes, I mean, I think to give you some background. So I've done 
six Olympic Games, uh, starting with Beijing, where I worked on tennis. So tennis was my way into working on Olympic sport. Likewise, Faye, I think that was her first Olympics. Um, and yeah, I've done winter and summer Olympics. So um, every two years normally, um, you're doing an, an yeah. Olympic game. And what we both do is we work for an organization called Olympic Broadcasting Services, which is owned by the IOC. And it basically produces the TV show that is the Olympics. Yeah. So when you're watching at home and, and you'll see the photo of everyone lined up, the pictures of everyone lined up at, the, at say, at cross-country skiing, which is one of the sports I work on. There you've got your row of cross-country skiers and you see the pictures of them all taking off. And that is called the world feed. Yeah. Um, and this is true of Wimbledon and tournaments like the Australian Open as well. So there's a basic world feed that every rights-holding broadcaster gets to see. And that's what you see watching at home. On top of that, individual rights holding broadcast companies get to pay for certain extras so if you're the bbc you want your bbc camera pointing at andrew musgrave who's the british cross-country skier which i'm sure you knew <laughs> so you want your camera pointing at him because your audience is going to be interested in what he's doing yep. likewise if you're japanese tv you're looking at the japanese athletes and, and our job basically is we're based at a venue and our job is to manage the the needs of those broadcasters Okay. So help them make sure their camera positions are in the right place. Make sure they've got what they ordered. Because it's like, basically, the more you pay, the more you get. If you want yeah. six cameras, you, you pay six times as much. And one of the key things is something called a mix zone. So I think you, anytime you've watched the Olympics, you will have seen an athlete within probably 30 seconds to, to five minutes of finishing their, finishing competing, whatever it is, tennis match, ski race, whatever, they come to what's they come and, and you see them interviewed and they're still sweaty and they're still breathless. And that happens in something called a mix zone, okay. which is like a kind of conveyor belt of, of cameras, if you like. So you've got a, a row of live TV positions. The first one might be Russian TV. The second one might be BBC. The third one might be Japanese TV and so on. They're all in fixed positions and the athlete moves from camera crew to camera crew and hopefully does an interview with each of them but maybe even just does two or three or might just speak to their home broadcaster. Uh, and that, um, you know, the Olympic Games in Rio, in that mix zone, I had 28 live TV positions. So for someone like Simone Biles, who obviously won multiple golds and was a you know huge global star, you had NBC, who are her home broadcaster in the US, desperate to speak to her, but you also had everybody else who wanted to speak to her. Same with someone like Roger Federer, Obviously, yeah. Swiss TV are desperate to speak to him, but he belongs to everyone. Yeah. Uh, and so my job was to manage those interviews and make sure that um, they didn't go on too long so that she spoke to the maximum number of people. Um, I mean, the, the, yeah, the, the kind of joke about Rio and, and, and hopefully working on gymnastics again in Tokyo, is that, I mean, what a privilege. What a fabulous yeah, yeah. sport. And to be able to stand a few feet from where Simone Biles is doing her floor routine is like extraordinary privilege. Uh, for those people who don't know me, I'm nearly six foot tall. So they put me on gymnastics and the average height, I mean, I don't think Simone is even, I think she's four foot nine or yeah, 10. Nothing, yeah. She's quite tall for a gymnast. Yeah. So there were quite a lot of photos of me kind of on all fours trying to stay out of camera shot. Um, 
So it's quite good for my, I don't need to do any squats or lunges if I do an Olympic <laughs> game. I pretty Brilliant. much spend the whole time on my haunches trying to keep my head out of shot. Because the moment you stray into camera shot for the BBC, you get, start getting abuse on text. Yeah. <laughs> so that's kind of essentially our job. Faye works, um, Faye's due to work on beach volleyball in Tokyo. She's always the more glamorous half of the, <laughs> of, of the duo. Um, and so she does that. And it's, it's basically, uh, there's an enormous team, as you can imagine. Olympics, as, as any major sports event, is cogs within cogs within cogs within yeah. cogs. And we're tiny cogs. But it's a brilliant job. It's amazing. great fun and, and amazing camaraderie you get working on Olympic Games. And, and I've met some fantastic people from all over the world. I'm sure you are the envy of every listener right now, you know, <laughs> and that's even before I've started talking about Wimbledon, but just if I assume it's quite similar at Wimbledon, but the, the question I want to ask, who's the biggest diva out, out of the tennis players? Who's the one that's difficult to deal with? Um, well, I'm obviously going to dodge that question in, <laughs> on the grounds of continued employment and also <laughs> retired, <laughs> retired. Um, I actually think, I think the vast majority of tennis players, because they do proportionately actually a lot of media post-match, even if they do the kind of bare minimum, it's at least probably half an hour to 40 minutes of media yep. for most players at, at, at the kind of top 20 level, for example. And if you come, you know, someone like Andy or, or Joe Conta or Heather coming from uh, Britain, where there's actually really quite a lot of traveling media usually, um, particularly at Wimbledon, obviously there's huge interest. You know that, that they're doing a lot um, now. They're very well compensated for it in all sorts of ways. But you know they're probably doing an hour. I've seen Roger Federer do two hours after winning a Grand Slam easily. Players are there till late at night after winning Wimbledon, doing yeah. multiple interviews, doing all the studios because we only ever see the bit that we see on our telly. But of course these are international events and these are international stars. So the, there's, there's that level of interest from the BBC, but then you multiply that by all the other rights holders from around the world. And I can't remember off the top of my head how many rights holders there are at Wimbledon, but it's, yeah. it's a lot. It's 80 to 90. And the ones who are on site will all want their little interview and their moment. And, and, and so our job in our team, and I'm one of the deputy interview managers in the team, we work under the broadcast team at Wimbledon. My job is to kind of, to help organise that. And that's what we do as a team. We, we try and, make sure that, that that's an easy and good process and experience for everybody. Uh, our rights-holding broadcasters who are really important to the championships, obviously, um, and, and the players and, and everyone else. Because you've got to do all that and factor in performance priorities, you know, and, and as you know, elite players now, post-match, have a lot to do. There's a big to-do yeah. list, you know, you've got your, you know, your warm down, your ice bath, massage, you've got to eat, you know, try and eat within half an hour or so to try and get some, you know, some protein and some carbs into you. You've got to hydrate enough. And on all that, you've, you might have to fit in perhaps an hour of media. And I think it's really important that, that everybody kind of buys into to how important it is, but also that it's factored into to the kind of jigsaw pieces that players have to put together in, in, in terms of their, what they've got to do as part of their job. Very good, Eleanor. So who's the biggest diva? <laughs> <laughs> Me. <laughs> I should have said, said Faye, really. <laughs> Annie Kay had a moment. <laughs> let, me, let me ask one more question on that. 
Is Roger Federer as perfect as he comes across in the media? I'd say we were very lucky uh, with with our top players. I think that for the most part, yeah, Roger's charming. I mean, as you would expect. Um, and I think, we, I think, like I said, I think the vast, vast majority of players are extremely good and very professional. Um, but you know, you have to. We have to bear in mind there's not many jobs where you've had a really bad day and everything's gone not your way or you yeah. haven't performed the way you thought you were going to or you've just discovered you've got a really bad injury and you're going to be out for a while and and, it, and it's happened at Wimbledon for example and something you've been working towards for months and months and months and you're expected to then go into a room full of people lots of whom you don't know and answer questions in a language that might not be your first language about what you did wrong yeah. you know it's a challenge it's a challenge for everybody it's, it's a difficult thing to do and and, the, and actually as I said for the most part they do it because they're because it's a big part of our sport you know their whole teams of uh, with the ATP and WTA week in week out arranging player media it's it's a massive part of a, of a elite tennis player's job now yeah, yeah. No, we had we had Xavier Melise on the on the podcast just before Christmas, and Xavier said something really interesting. He said he he wished he'd understood how important the media were whilst he was playing, and he said whereas now he plays the Legends Cups and you know he really enjoys he, the way he put it, even having a glass of wine and sometimes a cigar with the media, but and, and the sponsors, and he now fully retrospectively understands without the media, without the sponsors, without having that platform, that actually the sport doesn't exist to the level that it, that it currently does. And, and I know it's something you're very passionate about at the Amelia group, getting that training into the youngsters. I know you're working with the tennis Europe ITF to, to bring those things through. Is that part of the education process that actually you're teaching the youngsters that, Yes, it can be difficult, but actually, we also have a duty to grow the sport. Yeah, I mean, the the the, the project that you mentioned uh, is something we work on with Tennis Europe, which has been approved by the ATP and WTA, which is video educational videos, basically focusing on lots of different areas of professionalism. So it could be dynamic warm up, it could be periodization, it could be nutrition, and and we've done. Uh, videos on media and social media is part of that yeah. and, and I think it's it, it's all about getting good messages into players early and you, you're absolutely right and, and I've heard this from so many players who've stopped playing and then perhaps gone into work in media in some way shape or form and suddenly lots of pennies have dropped about how important it is and and how also the media that you do as a player particularly towards the end of your career is actually you to think of it almost as training for the next phase of your career if you then go into media later. So I, I think we could do a better job of helping players understand where media fits into tennis as an industry. And, yep. and also particularly understand that it's a, it's a big financial driver for the sport, that the rights holding broadcasters who request an interview are customers of the tournament. And I think we, we kind of tend to pussyfoot about, around that a little bit. And sometimes it's kind of, you know, sometimes it's pitched to players as, oh, could you do it? Would you mind yeah, doing it? Yeah. Actually, they've got a huge financial stake in, in, in our tournaments and in the financial health of, and sustainability of our sport. I mean, I, I, in saying that, as I said, I actually think proportionately players give a lot 
I think probably our job is to also look at how we can make the most of that time and being a bit more imaginative about how we yeah. use the players' time, um, especially as media has changed, you know, exponentially. Even in the sort of 20 years that I've been working in in tennis, media has changed enormously. You know, in in when I started, I was I was filing copy down a phone. You know, I was literally with reading. I had a laptop just about had to wind it up with clockwork. Yeah. But you know, I was I was filing to copy takers down the phone, and now you know now we're doing podcast over Zoom, and yeah, yeah. and social media and digital platforms have become so much more important tournaments are now looking at live streaming you're not necessarily so tied to one tv company it's it the whole landscape of, of media and sport has changed and is changing and will change and i think we um i'm quite excited about how we can kind of adapt the player interview processes to to reflect that and to make the most of that change and i think you, you see it organically you know we saw during lockdown one as we now have come to call it you know, how players actually organically started just messing about with their own social media and trying yeah. things, you know, and that was... Absolutely. And that was really exciting, actually, and they produced some really good content. You know, the, 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 the most memorable thing was Roger Federer and Rafa Nadal trying to work out how to use Instagram. Yeah. Like, <laughs> and, and, you know, you had that, and then you had, um, you know, I think the Tennis United kind of some of the content that came out of that was really good. I think there was some there's some really interesting, sort of very organic, creative stuff that's come out. Yeah. Um, whether and even things like you know Heather Watson doing her TikToks, you know, yeah, yeah. that shows a completely different side that you're not going to see in a post match interview. Yeah. Um, but I think we want to embrace that and encourage it and drive it and because we've got these brilliant personalities in tennis. Yeah. We've got these quirky, interesting, different, they're from different cultural backgrounds. They speak different languages. They've got different senses of humor. And, and I think we want to bring all that out uh, as, as, yeah. as much as we can. But Alan, if we take my myself and, and you, we're obviously very passionate about the sport. And I think there's, there's lots of people that are. So almost if the sport's three sets, five sets, we'll watch. If the sport doesn't have neck codes, does have neck codes, we'll watch. You know, if the sports interview process is a bit boring, we'll still probably watch. But but the reality is, and again, this has been a big learning for me doing this podcast, there is many people out there that think tennis is a dying sport. I don't know if I fully agree with that. However, what I do agree with is the reality is tennis is in a space where there's lots more other things that are competing for that time. They're competing for that media coverage. They're competing for that back page, what, what, whatever, whatever it might be. So players have to quite quickly realize that because, you know, it's one thing to, to complain about not getting paid enough, but you take away TV money, you take away all of those, those other things that come with, with being a part of media quite quickly, there's going to be more complaints about, about the money that they're getting and they're, and they're going to quickly realize. And I hope that people don't get to the point where they realize too late you know, and I guess my question is, I'm putting you in charge of media for the whole of tennis, men's and women's. What two things would you like to see come through that would grow the sport? I would start by saying that tennis is by no means the only sport that has this issue. And, and partly the passion is part of the issue. So we're passionate about tennis. And we, you and I could probably sit talking for four hours about tennis and be quite happy. 
Yeah. And and the problem is that sport is often run by the people that love the sport and are passionate about the sport and can't yep. understand why everyone in the world is yes. as passionate as they are. And so I think the the one big thing I would do is you have to look at sport from the eyes of people who don't care about it. Yep. And and that is the fundamental. And and it's very difficult in you know in tennis and in all sorts of sports. You always have this passionate core fan base, and you want to keep them happy, and you want to keep them energized, and give them what they want. But in doing that, sometimes you can exclude the people for whom they don't think tennis is for them for whatever reason. Maybe it's because they're you know a woman of color, or you know they don't they think it's played by posh people, or whatever the reason that they feel it excluded from tennis we need to fix that so we need yes. to fix the diversity of tennis number one um at all levels not just players but generally number one i think yeah we need to look at look at tennis as others who aren't tennis fans see it yeah i like that yeah. what are they seeing how can we change their view how can we attract them and it might be play they happen to come across a tiktok that really makes them laugh oh, oh apparently she's a tennis player you know, there's that. So their social media can be really important for that because it can bring people in that weren't looking for you, weren't looking for where they could watch Wimbledon. You know, I think in terms of TV rights and 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 things, I think, you know, it's unfortunate that in this country, for example, are fans having to maybe have three or four different subscriptions in able to watch all the different kinds of tennis. So I think that would be something that it would be great if the tours work together in terms of selling te tennis as a package, because I think, you know, it's at its most successful. We know it's at its most successful when the men and women are playing together. Yep. So it seemed, you know, so I think that would be brilliant. Um, I don't know how feasible it is. It's not, it's not really my distinct area of expertise, but I think that would be, that's, that's one thing. Um, I don't think we need to necessarily when we're selling the sport, differentiate between men's and women's tennis. You know, I think we can, just sell tennis. Tennis is an idea. Um, tennis is a concept, you know, so that we're not excluding anybody. Um, you know, I think that's that's something else to, to think about. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of really good work being done. I think if you look at, you know, some of the, the really good stuff that's been done on digital media by the ATP and the WTA, I think there's some really fantastic stuff out there. I think it's also about making that jump into conscious into the, into the consciousness of people who aren't looking for for your product yeah. and, and that is a is a big challenge but it's probably about not being afraid to look at what other sports do and look at best practice in other sports and how they've done things and also connect the dots with participation because it's no good having role models and great success at elite level and presenting a great showcase for your sport if you then inspire people to play and there's nowhere for them to play so there's lots of different pieces of the yeah. jigsaw, and um, that was kind of a long rambling answer. But there's a lot to do if you wanted if you wanted well, to put me in charge. <laughs> well, you're, I'm you're open to it, by the way, I've got more free time than I had. <laughs> <laughs> there's there's lots of great ideas there, Eleanor. The 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 last thing I want to talk about before we go into our quick fire. Two thousand and six, you were the writer of Andy Murray's book that came out age 19 when Andy Murray when it came out yeah. what what are your reflections on on that how how was that process you know and what are your reflections now looking back to a, a book coming out on Andy Murray at such a young age 
Well, first of all, I would mention I co-wrote it with Rob Robertson, a Scottish journalist. Um, and yeah, Andy was 19. I think I was a little bit older. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, I, I, I really enjoyed it at the time. I think, you know, it was it was very early to be doing that book, but we were asked to do it. And I think we I wouldn't have done it if I didn't think we could do a, a good and fair job. And, and, you know, it wasn't an official biography, but it was uh, we certainly didn't do it against anybody's wishes. Um, and I think it was, I, I think now it's almost like a kind of, I think of it almost as a historical document. Yeah. You know, if you look at it, we have a guest chapter with Leon Smith about what it was co- like to coach Andy at 12, 13, which is interesting when you think back to what he then, you know, you you, you look on at what, what he went on to achieve um, about his early years at Sanchez Casal. So it's almost, and I think we tried to make a conscious effort at the time to make it interesting if you weren't interested in Andy in particular, that actually just the story of a young, bringing a young tennis player through to the point where they were achieving it at the highest level, which even by 19, he was already doing, Um, you know, winning his first ATP Tour title in San Jose and and so on. So it was great, very interesting to do. And I've um, just finished working on another book actually with, for, for the squash player, squash world champion, Laura Massaro, which has been interesting as oh, well. Okay. So I've kind of kept my hand in uh, yeah. with my writing. Um, yeah. I wrote about Andy a lot during my journalistic career. And, and, you know, I just, I think he's extraordinary. I think yeah. he's, he's a brilliant, brilliant. And I know, I know, you know, I, I can also say he's a really brilliant human being. Yes. Um, and, and an extraordinary athlete and, and yeah. just a, uh, you know, a phenomenal role model in every possible way, I would say. Not just for our sport, but for, for British sport. Absolutely. And am I right in thinking that the day in Australia when he when he broke down with his hip, that you were you were there, but not only there, but quite vocal in, in helping him with that as well? Well, I was moderating his press conference. Yeah, so, um, yeah, it's been quite the journey with him. Yeah. <laughs> in a funny kind of way. Um, yeah, so he, he came in to do what we thought was his pre-tournament press conference and it transpired that he'd really been struggling with the hip and, and, and been in pain for quite some time. And, and um, as I'm sure everybody remembers, um, he, you know, poor, poor Eleanor Crooks, who's a very, very good journalist, a really nice woman uh, from Press Association, just asked him how he was. And that was it. He went. And I think there were a few people in the room who went went along with him as well. It was very emotional for everybody. And in that situation, you're kind of, um, you know, you're kind of trying to set your own emotions to one side and just, you know, my job is to get the press conference happening. And um, and so I've got, you know, it's, it's not the first time it's happened with a player. So, you know, we what we usually do is give them a couple of minutes to kind of see how they are, get themselves back together. Because otherwise, you know, a room full of British people with with a man crying at the front is like the most awkward yeah. social situation you can ever create. <laughs> so, so my instinct was, how are we going to manage this? And and I mean, he was incredibly professional. He went on to do an hour of media after that. You know, people kind of think, oh, they see that moment and then they think that was it. Not only did he come back and give a very, you know, typically eloquent honest press conference but he then went and did an hour of tv afterwards as well so his professionalism on that day is actually what i remember um yeah. and it was only then sort of when i got home or got, you know 
back to where I was staying that night. And then I, then I kind of felt a bit emotional as a tennis fan. Yeah, yeah. Is that it? That's, you know, yeah. and, but at the time, you know, you, you're in professional mode. So you're just yeah. trying to kind of manage everything. Because yeah. the one thing you know as a, as a moderator or in any work, as a running interview processes or whatever is, it's never about you. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. that's the... Yeah, but yes, it was a it was quite a memorable moment. Yeah, I mean, incredibly emotional, and I think actually Andy and I've mentioned it a couple of times on the podcast. He one, I think he has done more for for female tennis than probably anyone since Billie Jean King. Or you know, he's he's really, and I think that will be one of his big things in his legacy. But I think too, ever since he the, the waterworks opened in two thousand and. 12 Wimbledon final with 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 Roger I think he's also taught us that showing our emotions is okay you know and I think absolutely the young men so yeah. important so I was I am um, I'm lucky and my brother lives in Melbourne so during the Australian Open I stay with my brother and he's got two teenage teenage sons my 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 lovely nephews and and I I came home after that press conference and they were asking me about it and I was talking to them about it and that really brought home to me how important it was for them to see a man, a public figure, male public figure breaking down and for them to know that that's okay and that's fine. And it's not, it's better out than in. Crying is always better out than in. If you need to cry, just cry. And I think the more, I think that's another way in which Andy's played a really important role. Cause as you said, you know, He's it's now also become a bit of a running joke, him crying, you know, because yeah. he's, he's done it publicly quite a few times. And I think that's I think that's so important for young men and um, not just young men, but but men generally and, and particularly boys to yeah. see someone, a man they admire, um, yeah. not being afraid of, of his emotion and, and showing that, you know, when things hurt, you cry and that's fine. Absolutely. And the final word, what does the future hold for you and for Amelia Group over the next year or two? Well, that's a $64,000 question, <laughs> isn't it, this year? I think, um, I think it'll be another, you know, challenging year from the point of view of, you know, COVID continues to affect our industry and, and how we work and, and we'll continue to have to adapt to that, I think, for some months to come. Um, next up for us is is working remotely on the Australian Open, so working through the night. I'll be sat there in my thermals in, in at home in Whitstable in Kent, <laughs> which would be unusual. Working through, like I said, napping during the day and, and working at night. But that's, you know, that's another, that's a different experience, different way of doing things. You know, those guys are having to adapt in so many different ways to how they're running their tournament. It's never dull. It's always interesting, and it's a particularly interesting time you know, professionally. And then from then on, I think we would hope that Wimbledon will happen. I think it may happen in a way that we've never seen it happen before, but I would like to think it will happen. I think we've now seen that it's possible to run successful and healthy uh, and safe tennis tournaments for everybody who works at them and and competes in them and I think we've we've seen that and that's so our industry can carry on to a degree so I think that's that's good um and then theoretically Tokyo um you know will be if if that happens and I'm I'm optimistic about that just based on I'm an optimistic sort of a person um you know it it could be a really busy and, and successful year hopefully well surely Wimbledon 
won't get another insurance payout this year. <laughs> I, I, I suppose their insurance broker, I, I think no. Um, no, but like I said, I think I think they're brilliant at planning and they're brilliant at yeah. planning contingencies and, and they take care of every single detail. So I'm sure they're working, I know they're working incredibly hard right yeah. now to be ready for whatever the situation is in June and July. Yeah, well, I had a I had a moment this morning. So I, I coach Evan Hoyt, who mm. you might have come across. He quarter finalist at Wimbledon 2019 yeah. mixed doubles. And he's coming back from injury. And we had a moment just, just hitting a few balls. And I kind of said to him, do you know what? I'm really ready to be on a grass court in the sun, <laughs> hitting hitting some tennis balls, preparing for a match. You know, I think we're we're all ready for that uplifting, uplifting yeah. thing that's going to happen in our world. So fingers crossed. A massive thank you for coming on. You've been brilliant. I've taken so much from that, but you you don't get away without our quick fire round. Bring it on. So are you ready? I'm ready. Your favorite Grand Slam. Oh, I'll probably get lynched. Can I say, can I say two? Is that a terrible fence moment? I, I'll say, I'll say the Australian Open because it's very cliched for British people to say Wimbledon. And because particularly at the moment, a big part of my heart is in Melbourne. Everybody says Australia or Wimbledon. That's it. Yeah. My, you know, my best mate lives there. My fa half my family's there. I'm it's not amazing, in this year. So I'm feeling the heart. The, yeah. the heartstrings being tugged towards yeah. Melbourne. Uh, should there be an injury timeout or not for players? Yes, absolutely. I think the physical demands of tennis just get more and more. And I think we need to manage our, they're the salespeople for our sport. We need to try and keep our players playing in, in, in a way that's healthy. And that means helping them manage their bodies and their, and whether it's injury timeouts or helping them with scheduling or anything else. Who will be the next female Grand Slam champion for the first time? Ooh. Did someone, did you go back? Did someone say Shriantek from last year? I think it's worth trawling back through the archive. No, somebody, uh, somebody, do you know what? Myself and Leon Smith spoke just before the event. And I think I picked her before the event. But I, I'm going to go back. I'm going to say that someone's going to prove me wrong. Yeah. But I'm going to go. I'm going to go back. I'm going <laughs> to go back. Very, that's a very big call. Um, I'm going <laughs> to say. I'll say. Um, oh, I'll say Coco Goff, which is a really uh, very much on the fence answer and 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 a bit of a no-brainer. But I'll also say Leila Fernandez, just to right. be a bit more left field. And what about Australian Open 2021 female champion? Oh gosh, that's a. That's an interesting one because we've not got a lot to work with, have we, in terms of form and who's done what? And we don't even, the off season's been such a kind of peculiar one. Um, I will go with Victoria Azarenka because she's got, she's resurgent, she's a Renaissance woman and she loves those courts. I'm going to go Kenning. Yeah. So we'll, we'll have a listen yeah. after. And what about male champion? Um, again. It's tricky to predict, but I'm going to go with, it's very hard to look past Novak Djokovic. He is to those courts at Melbourne Park, what Rafael Nadal is to court Philip Chatrier, isn't he? There's just a, it's his, it's his backyard. So I'd say Djokovic. I'm going to be very boring and I'm going to jump right in with you. <laughs> Djokovic. <laughs> 
Boring, uh, but right. Yes. Uh, Zoom or in-person interviews? Oh, in-person. Has to be. I, think, I, mean, I would say, as a little side note, I know it's quickfire, but I do think actually Zoom interviews will probably become part of how we do things because I think it's very hard for journalists to be everywhere. And actually, you know, in weeks like this, you know, the week, two weeks before Wimbledon, where you've got Queen's happening at the same time as Birmingham, Zoom interviews enable us to get the story of the women playing great in Birmingham out. So I think, I think there's benefits to Zoom. It's a, probably a longer conversation, but, yeah. but I would say in person, but I think Zoom has a place. I love all the WTA and ATP ones. I think mm. they've been absolutely brilliant. You know, I really do. So I think, I think there's definitely a place for it. Should there be a joint WTA and ATP or not? I would love to see it. Um, you know, I don't have a political stance on it, but I would, I would love to see it just because I think that our sport is at its most saleable when it's a single product. What's one rule change that you would have in tennis? Um, hmm. I would make men's doubles best of three at all the Grand Slams. And who should our next guest be on the podcast? Oh, interesting. Have you had Sarah Borwell on? Yes. <laughs> a couple of times. She probably keeps <laughs> asking, doesn't she? Um, oh, that's a very interesting one to ask. Um, how about Gigi Salmon, who is a, I would say, probably the best tennis commentator currently. She's, she's fantastic. Sport, works for BBC Five Live uh, and is a big part of Radio Roland Garros and, and, also Wimbledon Radio and so on. So she, I think she, her perspective would be really interesting and I can get her on because we manage her. We'd, lo we'd love to have her. <laughs> How you do that? That's a good bit of, that's simultaneous thinking on your feet and deal making. <laughs> there you go, done. Thank you very much, Eleanor. You've been a star and uh, I hope all goes well with the remote management of, of the Australian Open as well. Thank you very much. Yeah, they're, they're a brilliant team. So if anyone can make it all work, they can. And it's been great to be on, Dan. Lovely to talk to you. Thank you. A big thank you to Eleanor. Absolutely love the chat. And that chat was it was a couple of weeks ago, but we've had so many opportunities to, to bring so many amazing guests on through the Australian Open that we've waited a couple of weeks to, to bring this one out. Uh, but I'd been really looking forward to, to you guys listening to it. And I'm really pleased to, to welcome my wife, Vicky, back to the show. She had a couple of days not feeling 100% last week, so we didn't get her on the show. But welcome back. How are you feeling? Much better now, thank you. I have sympathy for Tom Hill in the last episode who said he was having COVID tests every day. Oof, that, was, that was horrible. <laughs> so yeah, um, well done to everyone out in Melbourne at the moment who are having tests every day. They're not the nicest. Um, so yeah, I'm back this week to pick your brains down again on uh, your chat with Eleanor and the main takeaways, I guess, from um, what sounds like an unbelievable job. Yeah, I mean... Uh I think a very thought-provoking uh, podcast for me. And I think linking that in then to all of the other chats, I think one of the biggest takeaways I I get from that, and I'm going to just share a little quote of, of Eleanor's, that you have to think about the sport through the eyes of those who aren't as passionate as us. 
And I think that was such a such a nice quote because I think we all do get caught up in our own world. And certainly in the tennis world, I think we can be very guilty of this. We need more money in the sport. Players at a lower level should be receiving more money. Kind of give, 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 give. But the world works on supply and demand, you know, and if people want to give and want to, and want to be able to, to take more money from the sport, how are we going to bring more money into the sport? And I think she posed that question really well. For me, the, the main thing she said was kind of teaching players coming into tennis the importance of the role within the media and, and understanding all of that. So I guess whose responsibility is that and and what does that look like in terms of educating players on the importance of the media yeah i mean i certainly don't know have the exact answer to that but what but what i would say if we take the comparison that people love to have with football you know the hundredth best footballer in the world and i've been guilty of saying this receives millions a year you know where the hundredth best tennis player doesn't whereas if we take the industry of football and even something that I love myself, fantasy football. There's 8 million people are doing fantasy football, you know, for the Premier League. You know, you go on Twitter, you go on Sky Sports News, you go anywhere, you go to shirt sales, you know, you ticket sales, television rights. There's so much money in that sport that there's such a high, high, high demand for that in, in terms of us as the consumer. And, and, and I guess... What Eleanor was saying and what I took from that is we need to understand who are the consumers of tennis, you know, and if these sponsors are coming in, then the players need to understand that they are stakeholders in the game of tennis. So if that means after their match, spending an extra half an hour, if that means going to a sponsored event, and, and I think this is something absolutely as, as part of the education at, at an academy like ours, you know, I think definitely, I think certainly your ITFs, your Tennis Europe events when they're younger, you know, your national level events, because actually at the same time, if that is educated, what we're also doing is we're giving another string to the bore of our tennis players and understanding how the world of business works. Now, you're a media background, you're a, you're a journalist, you know, from your eyes, do you think the tennis do a good job on that? It resonated with me when she said, we often ask the players, oh, would you mind, could you? And that is, that is certainly right. It's almost seemed as doing us a favor every time we kind of would ask a player for an interview. Um, yeah, it's, it, it wasn't, I mean, this was back 10 years ago, it wasn't seen as such as them, um, as part of their job. It was seen as more of a hindrance and annoyance. Um, um, not for all the players. Um, some players that I, I've spoken to loved it, or yeah. particularly if it's live on a tennis court, speaking to the crowd, they love that interaction. But yeah, I, I certainly do think um, there needs to be more done. You were given media training, weren't you, when you were at Bishop? What? Yeah, we were. I mean, it was a, it was a bit naff, but yeah, I mean, we did we did a. It was kind of a fun day out, you know. <laughs> but I think I think that media training's changed a lot now because there's so many media platforms nowadays, yeah. <laughs> you know. And there's it's one thing to give interviews; it's it's another thing the use of social media. You know, there's so many different social media platforms. I think the, there's a massive world out there. And even if we take the Soto Tennis Academy, we would never have happened without social media. You know, true. you know, that that ability to to get your word out and spread that across the uh, across the globe. 
has completely changed. It's completely changed. And tennis, how are they going to do that? You know, Eleanor talked about the TikToks. You know, you might get some old fuddy-duddies that don't like the modern-day social media. It is reality. It is reality. You know, you see kids around the world. They're on TikTok. They're on these social media apps. And that is that is how you get people to get interested in a sport and it's and it's something that I'm sure is happening I'm sure it is in discussions but I certainly took that from Eleanor it opened my mind to that even more and I thought she did a great job of doing that you're connecting aren't you with the personalities of the sport when you're seeing them on insta stories or tiktok I think um, talking specifically about the post-match interviews it's such a skill for the players I mean it, and it's such a big ask if you think asking you know our son, t our 10-year-old or one of our players who's at a tournament to kind of talk about their match as soon as they've come off the court after a difficult loss. It's incredibly hard. Yeah. And, and, it, and yet we're expecting the pros to s sit down and, and speak eloquently, be polite to all the journalists when they're being asked some tricky questions at times. It, it is a very difficult thing to do, I think. So yeah, I, I agree. I think, she's, I think there is a, a lot that we can... Um, be doing to kind of educate players coming through and the importance of it but actually sitting down and doing it is just it's difficult and I guess experience is the biggest way yeah. that they're going to Im improve and get better at doing that there's also a skill to the interviewer and I think yeah. that's what we've seen in Australian Open you know there's been some quite rude comebacks I just saw Naomi Osaka yesterday didn't have a great comeback to, to the interviewer, but the interviewer wasn't an ex-tennis player. I think, for me, Jim Currier is the master. You know, if you listen to his interviews, it's very rare that the players don't give, actually. Yeah. So so it, it goes into a, a different skill development. But you did mention characters, and the other one that I, I just loved, I love Juan Elena Baltasha's stories. I think yeah. it's so lovely to... To speak to someone who's so so close to was so close to Elena and had such lovely things to to say about her, and then sec secondly Andy Murray, you know that was the the facilitation of that press conference when he broke down, and I think that insight into him going on and being the professional that he is and giving an hour of his time to the media when all we really saw at home was Andy Murray's about to give up tennis and he's broken down in, in, in the press conference. Yeah, she said we only see the really short clips, but actually he's going on and doing like an hour or so after that. That's what you never really think about when you're, wa when you're watching these clips. And yeah, like you say, you've seen a little clip of a socket. There would have been a lot more to that interview kind of before and after. So yeah, I, I, really interesting. I, I still want her job. It's, it sounded excellent. And I still think that Andy Murray's a legend. <laughs> and I still want him on the podcast. Come on, Andy. And whoever can get the get to Andy. Um but put a bit of pressure on his agents. His agents trying to kind of play the play the big man a little bit <laughs> on it, guys. So yeah, let's keep let's keep getting at Andy on social media. We will get him on one day. And uh yeah, so they've they've also we've had a lot of Great messages coming through again. Mark Petchy seems to be still making lots of waves. Um, you know, I know there was some messages going back and forth between himself, Leon Smith, Colin Beecher. There's been a bit of friendly banter. Uh, and he's now moved up to third position and he's closing in on Colin Beecher. And and then the other one that is to watch if if 
if you are interested in the charts, is the Justin Gimmelstob one, which when we did the Gimmelstob one, I really thought that was going to fly. I thought people are waiting for this story. Um, Justin himself has been off social media, and I know he came back last week, and he was delighted with the interview. He, he was really pleased to get his story out there, and he's now started to put that on his social media platforms. So we're seeing a real spike in the Gimmelstob one. You don't want to miss that one. Whether you whether you believe him, whether you like him, you don't like him, it, it is a story to be heard. And a great listen. And next week is a big one because we've got our 100th episode hitting triple figures. And um, I'm really, really excited about this guest. Nick Boliteri is our guest number 100. Uh, it was probably the hardest interview of the 100. Um <laughs> He, and I'm saying interview, the chat. He was brilliant. He was difficult. He tried to give me a lot of marketing material. Uh, and, I, and I feel like I managed to actually wear him down and get some some real nice insight into him. He's 90 years old later this year, Nick Boliteri. So he'll be Amazing. coming out next Tuesday. And then the other one, just to mention... We've got the review then of the Australian Open with the same guests. They've all they've all given me the thumbs up on our WhatsApp group. They're all ready to come back. There's been some good banter, um, particularly looking out for Freddie Nielsen's call in the in the woman to watch in this event. And I won't give the secret away, but wait until that until we have that discussion next week. And I have to say, my pick for both events are still going at the time that this goes out, Serena Williams and Novak Djokovic. And I can't tell you how smug I'm going to be <laughs> if I can go into that chat next week with a Serena-Novak double. So I'm not a big Djokovic fan, but I'm, I'm pulling for Djokovic purely for that in, in <laughs> next week's chat. And will Mark Hilton be able to get on the Wi-Fi? Is he out of Egypt? Is he still there? He's back. So as long as <laughs> no as, lo excuses as long as they have Wi-Fi in Chester. <laughs> so lots more still to come, guys. Thank you for listening. Hope you enjoyed that one. Please do keep rating, reviewing, reaching out. We love all of your messages and really appreciate all the support. Until next time, I'm Dan Kiernan and we are Control the Controllables. <laughs> <laughs>